This is Fine Music Radio. Today we present the first in the Fine Mind series, a program of lectures brought to you by the University of Cape Town's Centre for Extramural Studies as an extension of its annual summer school. Director of the Centre, Medi Rell, introduces today's lecturer and his topic. Our Fine Minds lecturer today is the historian Bill Nassen, distinguished professor in the Department of History at the Stellenbosch University and the author of several books including Britannia's Empire, Springboks on the Somme, The War for South Africa, South Africa at War, 1939-1945, and World War I and the People of South Africa. Professor Nassen's lecture is entitled, Whose War Was It Anyway? Jan Smuts, Louis Boerter, and the Union of South Africa in the First World War. This lecture will explore the mixed character of South Africa's involvement in the First World War, with parts of its divided society at loggerheads over participation in a distant imperial conflict, the crisis of 1914 to 1918 saw a flowering of both hopes and delusions. Professor Nassen will illustrate the richly varied ways in which South Africa, crystallized in the figure of Jan Smuts, understood the coming of the war in 1914, experienced its subsequent pressures, responded to its opportunities, and coped with its burdens. Having let bygones be bygones, in 1910, the new Union of South Africa's Afrikaner top dogs, Louis Boerter and Jan Smuts, had come to accept completely the objective and desirability of their country functioning loyally within the context of the British Empire. That furrow was ploughed ever more deeply when global war broke out in 1914, and that seed continued to be sown after 1918 in the international world of the new League of Nations. They had no choice in taking the Union to war in 1914, as constitutionally it was committed to follow where London led. But they would probably not have stayed out of it anyway, as prospects of contributing to a good war were enticing, were beguiling. What better to show just how well the new South Africa could stand on its own feet. Not surprisingly, their single-minded hunger for making a national mark in the international arena pitted them against Afrikaner nationalists when war came in 1914. Whether Republican, neutral, isolationist or implicitly pro-German, those malcontents all advocated some or other version of national autonomy, a South African self-interest, and they regarded Germany as a tactically useful spoon to bang on the table. For Berlin and its interest in fostering a Central African Middle Africa could be viewed as a counterweight, an alternative, to the continuing frustration of having to live with British political and economic domination. Smuts, in particular, was having none of this. In stinging parliamentary exchanges, he was contemptuous of nationalist pieties, such as their dreamy declarations of some natural Afrikaner-German kinship and hankerings after history of common culture and continental European fraternity. For instance, he reminded opposition MPs that when Paul Krier had travelled to Germany to plead for backing of the cause of Boer independence, Berlin had been no more than lukewarm. French Republicans and Belgian subjects, by contrast, had fated the Transvaal leader. At moments, he almost outdid his very own nationalist critics when it came to appeals to blood, bond and sacrificial dedication. It was not merely the Union's precious mother country that was in danger, for virtually all of Britain's loyal children overseas were under attack. In these dire circumstances, it was the urgent duty of everyone who had, as he put it, Belgian, French and English blood, to take up arms to protect British liberty worldwide. And for smuts, the source of that ominous threat to freedom lay everywhere, in fact, perilously close. Indeed, those in Parliament itself were warned to be wary of what lay within their own ranks.
for skulking in their midst there, right in the house, were deceitful pro-German agents, advocates and plotters gnawing away at the security of the country. When it came to identifying those who were considered to be harmful to South Africa's health and to rooting them out, Jan Smuts knew very well what he was on about. Not long before, in tackling the union spasms of industrial labor militancy in 1913 and 1914, the key villains had been identified. In acting against them decisively, not for nothing was Smuts already a man for all seasons, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Mines and the Interior, and also Minister of Defence. And, like the later Winston Churchill, his outlook on affairs of state included a distinctly authoritarian streak. If the troublemaking leaders of striking white miners and railway workers were foreign-born, the Union needed to be purged of their malignant presence. Declaring the maintenance of law and order to be the singular great question before the country, what had to be silenced were what the Deputy Prime Minister called the ravings of those radical trade unionists who were egging on, quote, the poorer Dutch and the ignorant natives. In due course, that knot of left-wing British trade unionists was collared and deported brusquely in an extra-legal fashion which bore the stamp of firm martial law habits. But let us return again to the Germans of 1914. Joining the Prime Minister, Louis Boerter, in a snap offensive, Smuts rounded on Germany itself. A rising menace, it had been on their minds since well before the outbreak of European hostilities. Now, it had become an imminently frightening threat, demanding a swift defensive response to check its expansionist ambitions in southern Africa. For an imperiled union lay at the very heart of German imperial designs upon Africa. As Smuts never tired of telling anybody who would listen, German cruisers in the South Atlantic, fueled from their West African colonial ports, were prowling stealthily. In the South Atlantic, they were an encircling threat to British merchant shipping and to the safety of his own country's vital overseas trade. And there was more. Berlin's wireless communications and long-distance radio installations on the other side of the Orange River were making South Africa's coast unsafe and it was now increasingly vulnerable to the onset of hostile maritime incursions. Already on land there were minor border crossing incidents. What were these but the sneaky beginnings of a concerted German infiltration? Naturally, the government's nationalist adversaries scoffed at all of this, for they had no quarrel with their German colonial neighbours and had absolutely no reason to pick one. After all, for civilians, the colonial border had long been porous. There was intermarriage between German colonists and northern Cape Afrikaners. They attended each other's cattle auctions. In places like Kakamas, shops even accepted the Kaiser's shilling. And across the frontier, they seemed to have plenty of beer but very few soldiers. In the most extreme Republican view, Pretorius tirades against Germany were viewed as a classic example of wire-pulling by London, with Smuts serving as the organ-grinder's monkey or carrying to South Africa his master's voice. The reality, though, was rather more complex. For one thing, as we know, South Africa's great headache in the Great War was the absence of a wartime consensus. The fraught issue of trying to stitch together white political unity in those years of crisis. The Union was not an emphatically pro-war place like New Zealand or Australia. 
Given the biliousness of its anti-war critics, its government knew well enough that carrying out Britain's request for action against German South West Africa ran the risk of aggravating the rupture among Afrikaners over the war. It already had something steaming away unpleasantly on its plate, the Afrikaner Rebellion. Britain was so alarmed by the reappearance of Boers on horseback, dressed in corduroy rather than khaki, that it even offered Boerta Australian and New Zealand troops to assist in putting down the 1914-1915 insurrection. Pretoria was sensible enough to decline and thereby avoided touching off a wider kind of civil war. Still, had those Antipodeans come, for once in history it might have been war instead of rugby, instead of the other way around. At the same time, there could be no question of the Afrikaner rising cancelling action against German Southwest Africa. It could only delay it getting underway. For, if embarking on aggression against a largely placid neighbouring colony was a political risk, it was a gamble that could have paid off. On that score, there was certainly some optimism from a slim yanni, or perhaps more, a self-deluded yanni. Once an invasion had been wrapped up, once Prussianism had been expelled from South Africa's doorstep, and once ex-German colonial land had become absorbed into what Smuts termed our Afrikaner heritage, there might well have been a softening of the wartime atmosphere. Landing the prize of a national conquest might become the bridge to a broader Anglo-Afrikaner wartime unity, as bitter anti-war sentiment mellowed into patriotic solidarity and shared pride in a wide national achievement. But, in the end, it did not turn out like that for the political fortunes of Jan Smuts and Louis Boerter. By then, the cracks were already too wide to be papered over by some humdrum desert war romance north of Uppington. Yet, when it came to dealing with the German neighbours, there was a second key consideration for Jan Smuts. More lofty, less pragmatic. He too, in his own way, was a pushy South African nationalist. Perpetually scheming away on the coattails of the British Empire he was never entirely the colonial office and war office poodle of radical nationalist caricature. We could possibly see him as the Cecil John Rhodes of his day. Manifest destiny was second, if not first, nature to him. What loomed large in that was Rhodes's vision of a white South Africa as the foundation of a British African Commonwealth. It was this which fertilized Smuts's view of a South African manifest destiny and which was a foundation stone of his development as an emerging leader of stature and of soaring ambition. As he imagined it fondly in the immediate pre-war years, to quote Smuts, the Union is going to be for the African continent what the United States has become for the American continent. The First World War arrived as a midwife to ease the birth of that grand white African constellation. Warming it up during the war years, it was a topic to which Smuts returned with a keen anticipation which rarely flagged. He was forever outlining his vision of a great white Africa to colonial office officials some of whom were either dubious or dozing. Never one to turn down a wider public platform, in London in May 1917, for instance, he assured his admiring audience, we have started to create a great new white base in South Africa, and today we are in a position to move towards the north, and the fuller civilization 
of the African continent. If we jump forward a little in the dreamy making of a greater South Africa from the entrails of the Great War, we can see Smuts doggedly persisting with it into the early post-war years and in some quietly striking ways. In 1919 and 1920, while visiting Oxford, he had a lengthy, often mournful correspondence with the poet laureate Robert Bridges. Like so many in Britain, Bridges had been hit hard by the loss of loved ones in the war, and Smuts was personally highly consoling. In these exchanges across the Cotswolds, he also expressed his deepening despondency over the fate of a Europe shattered by the Great War, and voiced his fears for the future of European civilization. For it was now on the ropes, on its own home soil, in Europe itself. It may no longer have a future there, my dear Bridges, Smuts wrote. How might it re-emerge from the darkness? If it were to have any prospect of regaining a lease on life, it might be through an assertive greater South Africa, a country unbroken by the Great War, and ever the eager colonial trustee of a great future white Africa. Back at home, Jan Smuts returned to this cherished theme at a suitably lofty location, with Table Mountain standing in for Mount Olympus. In March 1923, he led a climbing party of South African veterans of the 1916 Somme Battle of Delver Wood to the top of the mountain. Addressing this handful of damaged members of the Mountain Club of South Africa, some gassed, others blinded, the post-war Prime Minister did not mince his words. The war and its sorry peace settlement had left behind an indescribable mess, the scale of which was, to use one of his favoured words, monstrous. The world to the north of the African continent had been blighted, and Europe had been turned, quote, black. Now, it was up to the Union of South Africa to restore European civilization on African soil. In a sense, it was falling to it to complete Britain's unfinished business, the Cape to Cairo dream of Cecil Rhodes. In a heady or even mystical sense, for Smuts, a northwards widening of South African influence would not only help Europe to get off its knees. It would transform his country from a tributary of empire into a more mainstream presence in Europe and in world developments, cementing its significance as a League of Nations mandate power with Southwest Africa under its international paw. Powered by the Great War, it was a magnetizing vision which outlived its end. Or, from beginning to end, it was a case of Smuts's reach exceeding his grasp. Or perhaps it was always too much of a stretch for a five-foot leader from a four-foot country. Ultimately, what lay behind it was the earlier unfinished shape of the state which had been constituted back in 1910. Britain's Act of Union, which created what was then known popularly as the New South Africa, had left room for some potential incorporation of adjacent territories. After all, the northern boundaries of the new state were distinctly irregular, not natural. Crucially, the geographical form of the country did not fit logically with the integrationist needs of the region's political economy. Whether it was sorting out railway systems, expanding ports, or harnessing ample supplies of cheap migrant labor for the mines of the Vidvatisrand. In a way, South Africa was a bit like Germany, nursing a need and a desire to surround itself 
with more of itself. It was against this backdrop that Louis Boerter and Jan Smuts carried, or tugged, their lukewarm country into the Great War. Of course, as we have already noted, they were obliged to do so by its dependent Dominion status. But, in large part, they also took it to war to try to realize what they saw as incomplete national business. For all that it involved having to deal with heavy domestic discord, 1914 also came as a stroke of luck, for South Africa would be able to demonstrate its own power. Initially, it went very well. Impressively, in nabbing German Southwest Africa, Boerter's expeditionary force captured a vast territory far larger than France and humbled the Kaiserreich by forcing the very first German surrender of the First World War and producing its first armistice. And it had all been achieved, in the words of Smuts's trusted associate, the inimitable Denais rates, unbelievably cheaply. As rates put it, for fewer casualties than the cost of an average trench raid on the Western Front. There seemed to be more than enough reason to boast. Had any other Dominion state, entirely on its own, achieved anything comparable to such sweeping conquest? New Zealand had seized German Samoa, but of what significance was that, other than to enlarge the pool of all black rugby players once the war had ended. Always on the lookout for fish to fry, Smuts then overplayed his hand. During the closing phase of the German Southwest Africa invasion, he linked arms with the Union's Governor-General, Viscount Buxton, and egged on the Colonial Office to try to arrange a big swap between Pretoria and Lisbon. Pretoria hoped that Portugal a rickety imperial power held widely in contempt, could be induced to exchange Mozambique for Southwest Africa. The lesser Portuguese would get an immense amount of sand upon which to impose their bumbling colonial rule and could make a show of things by merging it with Angola. South Africa, for its part, would gain much for its northern interior not only an easier flow of migrant workers for its gold mines, but the excellent East Coast harbours at Delagoa Bay and at Beira. But Swakopmund and Ludritz Bay made for a pretty meagre exchange, and the Portuguese knew it. Something more attractive would be required to persuade Lisbon to shuffle around colonial territory. To Smuts's frustration, the stubborn Portuguese were not the pushover that he had hoped they would be. They simply dug in their heels. Indeed, it is arguable that one reason for Lisbon entering the war on the Allied side was as an insurance policy against South African designs, thereby obliging Smuts to keep his stealthy and acquisitive hands off Beira and Delagoa Bay. But a chronically arrestive Smuts had not given up entirely on horse trading, even with the mule-like imperial Portuguese. Next, the prospect of military success in Britain's campaign against the Germans in East Africa presented the chance of getting in through the back door, or of going northeast to acquire the southeast. Throughout 1915, South Africa's pro-war press did its share for Union ambitions. Readers were tantalized with what awaited industrious local farmers, merchants, traders and financiers in German East Africa, once it had been captured by a crack force of European Springboks, superior warriors who knew their way around the bush, unlike Britain's Indian infantry who were proving to be no match for German forces. So what lay ahead was a further strategic leg to the vision of a great white Africa, or, more concretely, 
a commercial bounty of sisal plantations, coffee estates and wattle farms, to say nothing of fine hunting and freshwater fishing to fill the weekends for South Africa's great captains and great owners. With this German territory taken under South African field command and Pretorius political leadership, the Union could once again look to some division of the spoils of the war in Africa. That division would be with Britain and would, again, entail leaning hard on Lisbon. Scheming away, Smuts floated proposals which envisaged the northern stretches of German East Africa being claimed by Britain, with South Africa becoming supreme in the southern part of the conquered German colony. There, territory could be ceded to Lisbon in return for its relinquishing of a plum part of Portuguese East Africa. In the characteristic adroit manner of his wartime diplomacy, this is what Smuts recommended to the British. It was couched as a reasonable, fair and mutually profitable Anglo-South African arrangement. After all, did both the mother country and its plucky dominion not agree that Portugal was a seedy, incompetent colonial power which needed to have its wings clipped? If Smuts's sense of a manifest destiny for the Union of South Africa was to come to anything, an essential condition was some dilution of Portugal's strategic spot in the region. Initially, the going actually looked fairly good for these objectives. During 1915, leading imperial figures like the colonial secretary, Lewis Harcourt, and the Union's governor-general concluded that East Africa was the obvious next African step, following Southwest Africa. South African involvement there would, as Sidney Buxton mused, have an overwhelmingly positive effect, providing a political boost to Louis Boerter and Jan Smuts, in Buxton's words, by allowing Boers loyal to Britain to take part in the war without having to fight openly alongside the British in Europe for what could be interpreted as British interests. It was more wishful thinking in a war filled to the brim and beyond with wishful thinking. After all, what it assumed was that hesitant foot-dragging Afrikaners would find succumbing to some tropical disease or snake bite in the bush more digestible than being machine-gunned on the Somme. Still, East Africa took wing in the war imagination. Plotting as usual, Smuts inveigled himself into command of the British campaign in 1916. In the saddle, or more precisely, in his big Buick staff car, he was wholly indifferent to carping from Britain's Indian Army generals in East Africa who regarded him as an upstart Dutchman of limited military experience. Moreover, he was an upstart Dutchman of somewhat suspect character. Had he not been their Boer Republican enemy not so very long ago? Yet now, not only was he content to wear a British greatcoat, he actually had the cheek to get himself put in charge of them. In pursuing its business of war up the northeast coast, the Union's leadership was able to enjoy a well-cultivated press. In its pages, both in Britain and at home, South Africa's African war was depicted in a strikingly carnivorous way, with the German commander, General Paul van Leto Forbeck, as the prey, Louis Boerter and Jan Smuts were on the chase or in the hunt. Predictably, it was an image that cartoonists lapped up as it provided their newspapers with a field day. Smuts and his generals, such as Jaap van Deventer and Kun Britz, were depicted as feeding lions, pouncing leopards, ravenous hyenas or dashing cheetahs, 
under whose claws lay a cornered enemy, thrashing about, but on the way to being spent. In projections overseas of Smuts as the big white hunter, the doughty Anglo-Africana Springbok even became conflated with the British Lion. In popular empire magazines like The Great War and The War Illustrated, Jan Smuts was turned tawny, fated to be triumphant in what was dubbed the African Lion Hunt. However, the actual campaign circumstances and outcome were rather different. Before being lured away at the end of 1916 to join the Imperial War Cabinet, a place better suited to his chessboard plotting instincts, Smuts had succeeded in taking Dar es Salaam in September of that year. With this accomplished, he declared that the Allied campaign in the region was finished, but for some small mopping up. That task would amount to, as he saw it, merely a police operation. It was an uncanny, ironic echo of the miscalculation of his erstwhile British imperial enemy, Lord Roberts, just 16 years earlier. Marching into Pretoria in 1900, Roberts had announced that the job was done. The Anglo-Boer War was finished. Here again, though, another war was far from over, and it ended up dashing really all of South Africa's expansionist hopes. Far from winning with what the Rand Daily Mail called Springboks of the Right European Stock, Union military strength bled badly in the hostile and unhealthy East African bush. With thousands of men stricken with malaria, dysentery and other draining fevers having to be ferried back to Durban and Port Elizabeth. There they were received as hapless invalids rather than as conquering war heroes. Stumbling Afrikaners had a notably hard time of it, derided in papers like Hetfolk and Ornsland as misguided volunteers, Yanis Manis or Boerter's boys, were the victims of their commander's indifference to the crisis of their deteriorating health. Their patchy intervention had to be completed in the end by Britain's African troops, the very forces that Smuts had insisted earlier would not be up to the demands and rigours of that campaign. Meanwhile, with morale in East Africa ebbing, some of Smuts's own generals had already become fed up with what they felt as his increasingly pesty personal presence. His austere oatmeal message of clean living and of Spartan endurance certainly cut little ice with his more chubby Boer commanders. It was not for nothing that Jakobus Jaap van Deerfenter was called an absolute mountain of a boor by one British war journalist who was quite astonished by how much room he took up inside a tent. In Mombasa, van Tierfenter, along with other generals such as Brits and Theo Brink, even resorted to hiding away from a stringy smuts. Alerted by the rumble of their leaders approaching Buick, they fled their tents for the boozy refuge of the Cape Core mess, where there were always brandy bottles to be hit. It was usually advisable to avoid Jan Smuts on these impromptu visits, for they invariably brought with them the risk of being yanked off for some exhausting hill walk or interminable mountain climb around the lower slopes of Kilimanjaro. Of course, the interminably lengthy and agonizingly costly hostilities in East Africa did end, if only after the 11th November armistice in Europe, with a reluctant German surrender to the mountainous South African van Tierfenter. But the Union had not won. Its envious eyeing of Portugal's strategic colonial assets brought home nothing. Again, 
Lisbon turned down any trading of its territory. London snatched the whole of German East Africa, rebuffing any claims upon Tanganyika by circling colonial allies. Not only aspiring Belgium and Portugal, but, crucially, the Union of South Africa too. The subsequent confirmation of former German colonial territory as a British mandate possession under the League of Nations was also, in a sense, the final seal on the geopolitical future of British Imperial Africa. The northeastern frontier of South Africa was now destined to remain where it was. Any movement on that wishful Cape to Cairo road would be overseen by London and not by Pretoria. Smuts had, of course, not played a bold hand without having checked some of the other cards on the table. Earlier, his dream of exploiting the Great War as a national opportunity, as a sort of fishing rod with which to snare and to reel in parts of southern, central and southeastern colonial lands, had gained influential support where it seemed to matter. In Whitehall, the notion of a greater South Africa had not only been attractive to several big imperial lights, in principle it had also got the nod. But, again, it was not to be. What had been attained north of the Orange River was not to be repeated north of the Limpopo or the Zambezi. Still, though, this is not to underestimate what Jan Smuts, with Louis Boerter, had accomplished in the broader context of the First World War as a whole. Their country had crossed many borders. With a dispersed war effort far beyond its colonial backyard, the blood of its fighting springboks had reddened the mud of the Somme in 1916 and Passchendaele in 1917 and had imprinted Delvo Wood as a mythic symbol of Anglo-Africana nationhood born in the fire of a European war. The Union's galloping industrialization, fueled by wartime demand, had strengthened its spot at the heart of a modernizing British Africa. In domestic white politics, Smuts and Boerter had been wounded, but they had weathered the worst. Smuts, in particular, was helped by a personal quality which he shared with Churchill, a tortoiseshell hide, supreme confidence and indifference to the consequences of some of his decisions. Thus, he shrugged off the Afrikaner nationalist fury over the execution for treason of the Boer rebel Yopi Furi in 1915. By then, as his eminent Australian biographer Keith Hancock noted some half a century ago, Smuts was very well used to being hated. Besides, there was no shortage of soothing consolation, such as being taken to heart and to tea by Britain's ruling establishment and playing a pioneering role in the germination of the League of Nations. And, for as long as hostilities lasted, he had kept his sights high, doing his best to advance national interests. As we see, even towards the end of the conflict, the First World War was not only about purifying Africa of so-called Prussianism, it was also about South Africa doing its bit to finish off the Ottoman Empire, clearing the Turks out of Palestine. Since 1917, as Smuts phrased it, the Allied Front in Palestine had an importance eventually second only to that of the Western Front. He dismissed France as a nuisance, an irritating burden that Britain might as well drop. Progress in ending the war could only be made 
eastwards with a strong Palestine offensive to topple the Turks and bring Istanbul to its knees. Again, as in East Africa, Smuts played almost every card to try to get himself placed in command of operations against the Ottoman Empire. For his influential and admiring British champions, such as the Conservative MP Leo Amory, as a disciplined Protestant Christian and devotee of a Protestant British Empire, who better than to take on Turkish Muslims? Moreover, was he not the only Allied commander who had not got himself bogged down because of immersion on the Western Front, a man who, in Amory's words, had not got trenches dug deep into his mind. However, by 1918, the prospect of South Africa in charge seems to have both amazed and amused the British War Office, not least as Palestine did not really matter very much in its strategic thinking. Sir William Robertson, chief of the Imperial General Staff, duly informed Smuts what was up. Palestine, as he put it tartly, was at most only a sideshow. The territory was merely an obsession of Britain's Prime Minister Lloyd George. South Africa's Deputy Prime Minister was, in turn, merely a personal fixation of Lloyd George, who had the misguided belief that he would be the right soldier to finish the Turks in Palestine. With too much against him on this occasion, Smuts gave up on the idea of command in the Middle East, thereby perhaps losing his chance of becoming a sort of Boer Afrikaner version of Lawrence of Arabia. It left a small irony. Although Smuts was not in front, some South African forces ended up there in 1918, led by Britain's General Sir Edmund Allenby. They included coloured infantrymen of the Cape Corps, a lesser contingent and not considered by Pretoria to be one of its national stars. Still, serving alongside British and Indian contingents, that Union Battalion did something to ensure that in September 1918 the Union played a noticeable role in ending Turkey's war. Between 1914 and then, Smuts's conception of his country's role in the Great War, the pushing out internationally of a self-reliant diplomatic and military presence, had come to considerable fruition, even if it was well short of where he would have liked it to have gone. In that demonstration of his own brand of national-mindedness, its direction was emphatically clear and unwavering. Squarely within a British imperial framework, it was to deposit a white South African identity and contribution widely, within and beyond its immediate colonial African backyard. By way of concluding, let us consider the extraordinary lengths to which Jan Smuts went to try to ensure that the country's identity in war would be the right one. When war broke out, many patriotic South Africans who were working or studying in Britain did not return to what they knew would be a quarrelling and divided country. Instead, they enlisted directly in British forces. Ultimately, they numbered several thousand. Although there was nothing that could be done about this, Werther and Smuts were rather miffed. A chance was being lost, for they were, as Werther complained, not fighting as South Africans. Then irritation turned to rage when Smuts discovered that included among the men who were leaving the Union to enroll in British Imperial forces like the King's African Rifles, were non-European volunteers, or what he termed 
disdainfully, men of doubtful descent. It would not do for coloured inhabitants to end up blending into British ranks, as if they were Christian soldiers in common, who knew the impudent ideas with which they might return. What could be done about it? For Smuts, the proposed solution was to have medical doctors assigned to check the pedigree of any would-be Empire fighters should the appearance on departure from the Union look doubtful. A more languid and less obsessive Louis Berta thought otherwise. To his credit, he reminded Jan Smuts that as there was a war on, the country's doctors were likely to find themselves with rather more pressing duties elsewhere. That was the first in a series of lectures called Fine Minds, presented by Fine Music Radio with the University of Cape Town Centre for Extramural Studies. Our lecturer today was Professor Bill Nasson. Thank you.